Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Bay School. As part of our outreach to the community, we are so happy to work with Blue Hill Books and WERU to bring amazing authors and speakers here to the community. It's an important part of what we offer to our students. Um, this kind of opportunity is just a great thing for our community as a whole. Um, we're really delighted to see you all here tonight, and I hope you enjoy listening to Charles Eisenstein as much as I plan to. I'm going to pass off to Benjamin to do a formal introduction. Welcome, everyone. Uh, it's great to see so many familiar faces and lots of new faces. So I'm Benjamin Fox. I'm one of the people who helped organize this event. And I want to thank um, Samantha Haskell, who's at the back of the room. I want to thank Samantha, not just for doing what she did to make this event happen tonight, but for keeping Blue Hill Books alive in our community. It's a and to Matt Shaw, who's over here, and uh, is Sam's collaborator. Yeah. And Rob Cushman, who was at the uh, gift box at the door, uh, was very, very helpful in getting the word out and supporting this evening. So thanks, Rob. Some of you may have seen the gift box uh, at the entrance. Um, Charles and Stella's time and uh, contribution to our community this evening is a gift from them. There's no speaking fee for Charles to be here. He's offering this as a gift. And so the gift box will be at the table on your way out. And if you feel moved to give some a monetary gift in return, please give whatever feels right to you. Uh, I met Charles last year at a retreat called The Space Between Stories in upstate New York. And I said to Charles uh, during that retreat that I'm very, very glad to be on the planet at the same time that he is here on the planet. And I, and I feel that way most especially because whenever I engage with Charles's work, whether it be his books or his essays or his podcasts, I always feel, um, well, I feel not alone. <laughs> in some of the things that are so dear and close to my heart. Um, but I also feel that Charles opens up a kind of um, another frequency, another frequency of possibility. Um, that there are, if not answers, there's good questions that could be asked about how to be human and how to be perhaps a better human at this time on the planet and the culture we live in. So I'm really, really grateful to Charles for coming tonight, and um, I'd love to give the mic over to him. And Well, thank you for those kind words, Benjamin. I uh, appreciate it. Hmm. 
I think I'll start by talking about what I consider to be the greatest threat to humanity and the planet right now, which is maybe not what you think it is. <clears throat> it's what I think it is, is polarization. Because if the people of this world are in perpetual conflict and 99% of their energy is going toward fighting each other, how much is going to be left to change the course of the ship of civilization, which right now is not heading toward a very good place? Not much will be left. And as long as we continue fighting each other, we're going to, the momentum of the familiar will carry us, yeah, as I said, to not a very good place. So I've become really interested in why things have become so polarized, not only in, on, in national politics, but even I was talking to uh, Benjamin and Lori this afternoon about this, and they were like, yeah, even in this town, there was this hugely polarizing issue about the bell tower uh, or the steeple of the church, and should it be a steeple or should it be a bell tower? And people were getting really, really upset with each other about that, which is obviously, okay, I mean, not to like trivialize it or anything, but, you know, I mean, next to nuclear holocaust or climate change or any of the, the big crises facing us, it's maybe not that important, but still people are really uh, worked up about it. And I see this all over the place where, where people are just waiting to fall into polarized camps. And so I've thought a lot about why, why that is. A few things have come to mind. One is, well, for one thing, we're just programmed to look at the world that way through the, the lens of the enemy, to find something to identify as evil so that one, I myself can identify as good. This programming is rampant in entertainment. The plot of most movies, most Hollywood movies is that there is an inexplicably evil person or group and they're causing the problem and the solution is to overcome those evil ones by force. That's what the superhero does. I just saw the latest Avengers movie. Did anybody see the Avengers movie? Raise your hand if you did. Okay, very few, good. So, uh, I, I am going to uh, give you a spoiler here. <laughs> but I'll say that this is a movie that cannot be spoiled. <laughs> because it's already spoiled. <laughs> yeah, I, I, like a third of the way through it, I leaned over to Stella and I was like, they say that a shared ordeal makes your marriage stronger. <laughs> so... But basically the premise is, so in the, in, the last, in the last Avengers movie, the bad guy, Thanos, who 
wants to destroy half of all life in the universe. Uh, interestingly, he has an environmental rationale for doing so. Uh, too many people, too much resource extraction, um, and the world would be better off with less. So anyway, but he, he, he succeeds, and he destroys half of all life, including half of the Avengers. So Spider-Man dies, and all these other ones die. They just disappear in these puffs of dust. And then he goes and retires to his refuge planet, and in the new movie, you discover that he's become an organic gardener. <laughs> There he is. He's got his suit of armor, um, you know, rusting on a stake, and he's like pushing. A, I can't remember exactly, but he's pushing a wheelbarrow around or something like that, and and enjoying the flowers and stuff. And so the remaining Avengers come and they they behead him, and then after that they don't know what to do. Thor becomes a drunken oaf. Iron Man becomes a suburban dad. Um, Hawkeye becomes a, 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 this unsavory vigilante. Um, the Incredible Hulk becomes like this giant green scientist. And like they don't really know what to do. And, 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 and the, obviously the filmmakers don't know what to do either. So <laughs> what they do is they bring, they, they, they decide that they're going to undo everything that Thanos did by going back in time and getting the magical infinity stones that give them godlike powers, and they're going to, to undo his killing of half of all life. But in so doing, going back into the past, they bring Thanos back as well. And so now here's a bad guy again, and now they know who they are again. They are, because how can you be a hero if there's not something to fight? And if your identity is built around being the hero, or let's make it a little bit more diffuse, if your identity is around saving the world, or being part of saving the world, or being on team good in the war to improve the world, pitting you against team evil, if your identity is built around that, and all of a sudden evil has retired, what are you going to do? You've got to find a new evil, don't you? So I, I was taking it as, as this kind of alarming political allegory because in the real world, well, sort of the real world, uh, evil, like the last mighty villain on the geopolitical level, died with the Soviet Union. And after that, you might remember that there was... So, the, so then who are we? If we've always defined ourselves as the good guys fighting tyranny on the planet, fighting evil on the planet, bringing peace and democracy and freedom to the world, who are we when there's no Soviet Union to fight? And so you might remember some of you who are my age and, and older, the first candidate for evil was the Colombian drug lords. Remember that? 1992, 1993, like that was the big, big evil. And then that wasn't really that scary. So then they invented Islam and 9-11 and happened. And now we had evil again to fight the clash of civilizations. But, you know, that's not that scary either, really. It takes, no one's really that scared, as far as I know, of Iran. 
And so now they're trying, just like in the Avengers movie, now they're trying to resuscitate Thanos in the form of Vladimir Putin's Russia. But, you know, like, is anyone really scared of Russia the way that when I was a kid, we were terrified of the Soviet Union, the Iron Curtain, the Gulag Archipelago, global communism? Like, it was scary. Not that scared. I mean, anyway, so, so this is a, a pattern here. And, and I guess I'm, I'm going into this a little bit to, well, I got into the, um, the Hollywood aspect of it just because the programming is so deep to find something to fight. And it goes beyond uh, politics, of course. Goes to familiar examples, agriculture, medicine, the war on the weeds, the regime of pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, side, meaning killing, find something to kill. Um, or in medicine, you, find, you want to find the pathogen, because then you know what to do. Even today, we were, so we were, we were walking on the beach, and uh, Lori, I think, said, wow, you know, this is so, this looks beautiful, but it's so depleted of life compared to 15 years ago. Stella and I had this experience in Rhode Island, too. These tidal pools, I love the tidal pools, and I like looking at the, there's seaweed in there and some snails, you know, and she's like, when I was a kid, there were sea anemones in there. there was, it was teeming with life. And now there's just a little bit. And my reflex is to want to find something or preferably somebody to blame. So we went into, like, what, what, what is that thing? I've become wary of that whole pattern of thinking, to find the thing to blame. Wary of it for a couple reasons. One is because Am I going to that because it's comfortable and because I know what to do then to find a thing to fight? Or am I going toward it because it's actually true? If I'm going toward it because I'm comfortable with that and, and it's familiar and I know what to do, but it's not the truth, then I'm going to be in an endless fight that doesn't actually solve the problem. For example, if you have strep throat or ear infections again and again and again, and every time the problem is the, the bacteria and the solution is the antibiotic and you kill them and it comes back again and again. Well, you're in an endless war. And in fact, it could be that the weapons of war that you're using actually perpetuate the underlying condition. For example, if your antibiotics are disrupting body ecology and destroying the protective bacteria that secrete bacteriosins that prevent strep from taking, from establishing a foothold. So similarly, if, if your diagnosis of terrorism is terrorists and your response is to bomb and kill the terrorists, maybe you're exacerbating the underlying conditions that breed terrorists to begin with. Because people get upset when, you know, the bomb misses the terrorist compound and destroys an apartment complex instead, or something like that. I don't want to simple, oversimplify this either. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. 
So basically, one problem with it is that it's inaccurate. It's a misdiagnosis that invites us into a state of perpetual war. And the other thing, right, and, and, and obscures what might actually be the cause of the problem, the causes of the problem. So there we were, uh, and, and, and wanting to find something to blame, and we began talking about, well, you know, maybe it's the, the um, scallop, the uh, um, scallop dredging, you know, like scraping the bottom of the, of the sea floor there and destroying all the, all the, the biodiverse ecosystems that thrive there and so on. And um, that felt kind of satisfying to blame this practice and maybe the greedy perpetrators of that practice. But then I was talking to Rob and he's like, yeah, you know, it's not actually that simple. Um, a lot of these, the people who do the dredging are only doing it for a very short period of time. It's in places that have been dredged a lot anyway. You're not actually destroying pristine ecosystems, et cetera, et cetera. It's complicated. Sometimes it's worse than others. And these are local people on day boats. These aren't industrial trawlers that are, um, you know, it's, it's, so how quick are we to find somebody to demonize? And what gets left out when we do that? What gets left out, <coughs> I'm learning, are the things that are actually um, crucial to healing our world. What if the cause, and so, okay, I'll, I'll have to mention now climate change as the most popular the cause of whatever problem that you're looking at. It's blamed for everything from Syrian refugees to um, uh, algae overgrowth, red tide, uh, the insect apocalypse, um, we, we, we heard a, t a talk this morning at this conference I'm at uh, by um, Bill Mook, um, who's um, a leader in the oyster farming industry, uh, talking about the, the problem of increased runoff into the oceans, which, which um, drops the pH level, because rainwater is way more acid than seawater, and so it really harms the, the crustaceans the, and the, the shellfish. And he says, and that's caused by climate change um, because higher temperatures lead to more evaporation and more rainfall, more high precipitation events. Okay. There's the, the cause. But what gets left out? Well, one thing that gets left out is beavers. Now, what do beavers have to do with it? In fact, this continent, if you, if, you, if you think of a stream and you look at a map and there are all the streams going into larger streams and into the rivers and then into the sea, it didn't look like that. Instead of streams, you had a necklace of beaver ponds and vast wetlands, not these incisive uh, water, waterways. And these slowed down the water so much that there was basically almost no runoff. All the water 
filtered into the groundwater and then came up as springs, which then fed into the, the rivers um, and then into the ocean. So whatever the level of rainfall, you had almost no runoff, because not only, and not only because of beavers, but they're important, but also because of um, healthy soil. Some of the uh, regenerative farmers I've been, been studying, they, they take this industrially farmed land that has water penetration rates of, you know, an eighth of an inch an hour, which means anything above that runs off, and they, because they, they make the soil alive again, the soil can, can absorb the water, and you don't get runoff then. So runoff is a symptom of, of everything, and it's, and, and it's, and it's and we're included in the cause of runoff by the way that we, and I'm not including everybody in this room uh, because I know a lot of people here are involved in the local food movement and maybe you are really conscientious about sourcing your food from people who grow food with regenerative practices, which basically means that you take care of the soil knowing that the soil will take care of you. You take care of life knowing that life will take care of you. This is a very different mentality than the larger mirror of find the enemy. The larger mirror of find the enemy being the war in nature, being seeing nature as an other from which we can extract and whose well-being is disconnected from our own well-being. And in fact, the more that we kill, the more that there is for us. That's, that's the, the conquest of nature mentality. So regenerative agriculture is a reversal of that understanding that we're all in this together. And so, as we understand ourselves as part of a living system, and we understand that the terrorist or the criminal or the bacteria isn't separate from ourselves and, what we, and how we live, but it is a reflection then the mentality of destroying the, the, the perpetrator, destroying the, the bad guy, no longer makes sense. And we step into a different kind of um, perceptual orientation, um, which is that of, of participation. So I don't know why the tidal pools don't have as much life. Maybe it's because of, um, I mean, who knows? It could be because of Roundup. Who knows what the, or it could be because of overfishing. This is another thing that, that came up um, in the, the talk about ocean acidification. We'd like to find one cause, which could be rising levels of CO2 in the atmosphere. And I'm not saying that this is not a cause or that it's not dangerous. But I was talking to a marine biologist and I said, you know, um, I've been reading a lot about the kinetic effect of fish in ocean mixing. And in fact, that, that um, fish and whales normally cause as much ocean layer mixing as all geomechanical forces put together. 
ocean layer mixing is important because all of the nutrients or most of the nutrients are in the deep and the deep cool waters um, in, the, in the depths. And they ordinarily come up in, in places um, um, in polar regions especially, but there's places where they upwell to the surface and those are incredible feeding grounds for, for whales and fish. And then the whales, having fed there, they travel across the ocean and they give birth in the tropics and they release the nutrients in the tropics. And in places that would otherwise be ocean deserts, they bring life to those places. But also through their diving and through the... And the marine biologists are like, yeah, right now we have 10% of the fish that we used to have. 10% um, of the fish biomass and maybe even less. Um, you guys, you're in Maine, you've heard the stories, right? You've heard the stories of, of three-foot-long cod fish that you could, I mean, they say you could sometimes in some places walk on the water because there were so many fish. You could throw a, a bear line in with bear hooks and catch fish in seconds. You could dip a basket into the water. Um, you could look out and see, see so many whale spouts that the air was full of mist. And today, I'm excited if I see like three or four whales. Like, wow, whales. You know? But you, there used to be thousands out there. Like, the, the world was alive. It's still alive, but not as alive as it was. Coming from, so this is a, maybe a deeper level here, coming from a, I call it a geomechanical worldview that sees Earth as machine, we tend to discount the effect of life in maintaining life. And we look upon life as something, this happenstantial scum on top of an of a orbiting rock. And we think that where there's um, enough moisture and, and good conditions, that's where life thrives. And where those conditions, like in a desert, there's not very much life. But in fact, the conditions for life to thrive are, we're discovering more and more and more, they are created by life itself. <sighs> I keep wanting to mention like all these examples of how life creates conditions for life. Like to go back to the beavers, you'd think that if you had a lot of beaver ponds, you'd have a big mosquito problem because they're, they're creating all this stagnant or almost stagnant water. Whereas a fast-flowing stream, you're not going to have mosquito larvae in there. But in fact, the um, beavers actually help suppress mosquitoes. For one thing, these big stagnant ponds are incredible breeding grounds for fish and frogs, tadpoles, and they're gobbling up mosquito larvae. And then the mosquitoes that make it to full-blown mosquitohood and have gone through their rite of passage and become adult mosquitoes, that was an attempt at humor, by the way. <laughs> they, they have to deal with the bats, whose ideal, there's many species of bats. This is what a beaver biologist told me a couple weeks ago. There's many species of bats who exclusively uh, nest in the dead trees that are caused by the um, beaver, beaver ponds. So they, 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 they flood out these trees, the trees die, and these are ideal habitat for certain species of bats. 
that then eat massive quantities of mosquitoes. So this is just a glimpse into the world as organism, the world as alive. When we begin to see the world as alive, we look for different things, and we understand it in a different way. And we understand that, that even if we're not aware of the causal mechanism, that if we destroy the fish, or the whales, or the beavers, or anything, any of these organs, these are organs of a living being, then the being is going to suffer. It's going to become less resilient. And what will the symptom of that be? It could be unpredictable. But something bad is going to happen, and it may not be easy to trace to its cause. It may be through a very long chain of cause and effect. And I keep noticing my desire to jump to a cause. And I'm not saying always ignore the proximate cause. Right now, one of the biggest threats, so whales have had one threat after another after another. For, for a couple centuries, it was commercial whaling that, that brought their numbers down to a tiny fraction of what they were. And then it became uh, pollution. Now, I think the biggest threat to whales is plankton death. And what's causing plankton death? Partly it's the whales, the decimation of the whales is causing plankton death because they're not bringing up the nutrients from the depths anymore that feed the plankton. Um, also, there's, um, like I like to find the thing where I can blame somebody. So what about seismic surveys? The, the marine biologist I was talking to the last couple days, um, he's um, an activist in trying to halt seismic surveys, which are basically you go to the continental shelf and you set off a 160 decibel air gun uh, every 10 seconds, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for weeks and months at a time in order to survey the underground uh, geological structures to see where there might be petroleum. And the whales, they, they, they get deafened by these sounds going off all the time and they're even if they're not deaf, like, okay, like we could measure that, but, but, but what about just their general well-being? Like how would you feel? How happy would you be? Would you thrive if someone was setting off a 160 decibel air gun in your neighborhood 10, every 10 seconds, day and night? You'd probably complain to the, to the uh, uh, you know, ordinance enforcing authorities but the whales are not able to complain in ways that we are capable of hearing at this point in time. There are some who can hear, and some scientists now, are, they actually um, had the opportunity to measure cortisol levels of the whales when um, shipping, and this was uh, in an earlier time, because sh shipping also is, is really detrimental to the to the whales because they're so sensitive. They can hear each other's songs for hundreds of miles. So anyway, the seismic testing, I mean, sometimes they have hemorrhages, their ear, they bleed out their ears, but also, also it's just they can't communicate very well anymore. The dolphins end up screeching. They're, they're, the um, nuances and the complexity of their songs is reduced to a very narrow, loud bandwidth, and the whales just go silent. Well, that's all very sad, but it's not a threat to the planet, is it? Unless you think, well, maybe the songs of those whales aren't just 
um, you know, some kind of decoration on whale life, but maybe they form a global brain that's, that spans all of the oceans. Maybe they communicate with each other so that they know where these nutrients need to go. Where, they, where, the, where do we need to go? Just like the beaver, um, one of my, my friends here, I think it was, it was either Benjamin or, or Lori, maybe both, they were saying that they felt like they, there was a beaver that took up residence um, in the cove uh, where they live. And it seemed like when the beaver was there, everything got healthier. Because beavers are these magical keystone species. They have enormous ecosystem effects. I mean, they changed the water cycle. And the cove got healthier, and they were like, it seemed that the beaver was attracted to this place because it knew that it was needed here. Yeah, they changed the water cycle. Because when the water is slowed down, this is slow water. You've all heard of slow food, maybe slow money. There's slow water to slow the water down so that it has time to evaporate and to sink down into the, into the water. Uh, regenerating soil also slows the water down. So instead of running off, carrying soil with it, and then yeah, it gets sponged, it gets held in the soil and, and then evaporates over time or is transpired by plants over time, creating uh, zones of humidity and generating new rainfall that extends the rainy season, shortens droughts, and mitigates floods because instead of running off, the water gets soaked into the ground. And cooling the temperature, too, because the water... Um, uh, absorbs heat as, as, it, as it evaporates, and then when it condenses higher up, it releases the heat. And if it's happening over a healthy ecosystem, then it forms clouds a lot more easily than it does over a depleted ecosystem, because a healthy ecosystem puts, puts these um, cloud-seeding chemicals and life forms, bacteria, into the air that and, and some of the bacteria that are produced in, in healthy forests, in greater quantities, at least in healthy forests, have these ice-nucleating proteins on them that allow clouds to form in a much lower level, thereby reflecting more sunlight. And so it's part of this, this incredibly complex physiology that, that, that moderates the temperature. Again, returning to the principle, life creates the conditions for life. Today we have many, many millennia, we're at the, at, the, at the end of many, many millennia of destroying life. The earliest records of civilization speak of deforestation. The Greek Isles, you know, those stony, these, those rocky landscapes baked in the sun, all used to be forested. The entire Mediterranean was surrounded by wetlands. The Sahara, five or 6,000 years ago, was a savanna. You can find uh, hippopotamus bones uh, in, in, in the Sahara Desert. And it was only a few thousand years ago. Mongolia, the deserts of Mongolia, six or 7,000 years ago, that was um, not a desert either. So we have 
a diminished capacity of life to maintain the conditions for life. And at the same time, so these are, these are organs getting weaker and weaker. And now, in the, and so now, in the last couple hundred years, the destruction of life has reached industrial levels. I hope I'm not upsetting you here. Um, actually, basically what I'm saying is it's at the same time, it's worse than you think and it's also better than you think. So yeah, and then, and then happening now at an industrial pace, and then added to that is rising levels of greenhouse gases, which, and I don't have like evidence for this, but the, the, the um, intuition that has developed in me as I've done this research is that if we had a healthy biosphere, it could handle pretty big fluctuations in greenhouse gases. If we had all of the forests that we once had instead of half, if we hadn't depleted 80% of the mangrove swamps, depleted, destroyed 80% of the mangrove swamps in Southeast Asia, 80% of this, or I might have gotten that one wrong, maybe it's half, 80% of the seagrass meadows um, up and down the coast of New England, if we hadn't drained all of the wetlands, and so on and so on and so on, 90% of the fish gone. If all of these beings were, were robust, then maybe greenhouse gases wouldn't be a problem, but they're adding even more stress to an already burdened system. And my prediction is what you would call climate chaos. The tricky thing is that it might not be global warming. It could just be, it could be, it could be fluctuations. Um, extreme heat in one place, extreme cold somewhere else, or much more likely is fluctuations in, in water, which is actually a lot more dangerous for, for human beings and for life. The water cycle is, you know, water is more important than temperature. Of course, they're related, but it's, water is, is overlooked a lot in the dominant narrative of climate change, which puts all of the attention, or almost all of the attention, onto carbon, di carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. So, and, and that, that attention fits the pattern of find the one thing that will solve everything. Find the cause, find the enemy, the thing to attack, the thing that you can go to war on. And so we see a proliferation of war metaphors, the fight against climate change, the struggle, the war. There's one, I'll mention one more origin of this mental formation of find the, the one thing that'll solve all your problems. Where do we get the idea that there's one thing that'll solve all your problems? What is that thing in your life? If you only had it, all your problems would go away. Money, of course. Obviously, I mean, it, it looks that way, but obviously everybody knows on some level it's not true. It won't help you if you're in the midst of a terrible divorce. 
if you're addicted to something, if you're ill. I mean, money actually doesn't solve very many of our problems, except sometimes. I don't want to say that it never does. Sometimes what you need is money, but that way of thinking is a cause of the find the enemy approach to problem solving. And it's also a symptom of something else. Like if I, want, if I want to blame money, well, why has money become so important? And I, that gets into, I'm not going to talk too much about that, but I wrote a book called Sacred Economics that, that goes into that question and the disintegration of community. Because community is essentially a network of gifts, of, of generosity, of, of gift giving, and of stories that, that, by which people take care of each other. And if community dissolves, and you can't rely on your neighbors to provide what you need, then the substitute for that loss is money, because then you don't need your neighbors anymore. As, and, and yeah, I mean, this has come up in my conversations here as well, Maine being kind of off the beaten track a little bit behind the rest of the country, there was still really strong community um, up until a generation ago, according to what people say. And in some parts, probably there still is much stronger community than you would find in the typical homogenized suburbs of this country. But still, is even if you still feel like you have some community here, is it stronger or weaker than it was 30 years ago or 60 years ago when everybody knew each other? and you could rely on your neighbors. Community provides not only security, but also a sense of belonging and of identity. You know who you are because you are known. When that disintegrates, the result is a crisis of identity. It's not the entire explanation for the crisis of identity and the crisis of meaning, but it's a big part of it. When you don't when you're not known by the people around you, when you don't know their stories and they don't know your stories, you don't know who you are. And you become susceptible to political identities that are offered to you, which could be left or right in their orientation but they say, here's who you are. And very often it is, you are one of the good guys. You are one of the good team. And now you know who you are. So I think a lot of the polarization of society is a symptom of a crisis of identity and a crisis of meaning. As the saying goes, war is a force that gives life meaning. I'm quoting, what's that? Chris Hedges, yes. Life is a force that gives life, uh, war is a force that gives life meaning. So war thinking is especially attractive when meaning has collapsed. 
And this is a, a bigger picture here that, that is really at the basis of a lot of what I, what I write about. The, the disintegration of our, uh, of our civilization-defining stories, this disintegration of our myths, the myth of science and technology making life better and better and soon to usher in a technological utopia, for example, the myth of progress, the myth of, of the perfection of society through reason and um, Western democratic values. The myth of, I mean, we don't put it in such bald terms anymore, but the myth of the conquest of nature that will make life better and better. It was strong in the 50s and 60s. I, when I was a kid, I, wrote, I read this book uh, over and over. I loved it. It was called The Insect World. And that's what I, I, that was one of the things that got me really interested in biology and, and, and science. And this was, the book was written in the 50s, you know, before Rachel Carson even. And it said, basically, there are three kinds of insects. There are the beneficial ones, the neutral ones, and the harmful ones. And we can make a better world if we, if, if, thanks to the miracle chemicals like DDT, we can exterminate all of the harmful ones. This was unproblematic at the time, that, that good will come through imposing control onto the world. And that rests on a deeper foundation which says that the world itself is a random melee of force and mass, generic particles, bouncing around according to mathematical forces, that the world outside of ourselves is not intelligent, it's not alive, it's not conscious, it's not a being, and that progress consists of imposing human intelligence onto a world that has none and expanding our capacity to impose, to make our imprint on the world. That was what progress was, and that rests on a foundation of mechanism, of, of world as machine. And I want to say that the revolution that we are engaged in right now goes all the way to that level. It's a, it's a transition in the basic way that we understand self and world. No longer seeing it as a dead mechanism upon which we impose our intelligence to improve it, but seeing it instead as alive. And I would go beyond alive. I would say that it's it's conscious, that it's intelligent, that our, that gut feeling that the beaver came here for a reason because this cove needed healing, that that's accurate. I am afraid that if we don't go to that level and we see the current crisis as merely a matter of finding an alternative fuel source to power industrial civilization, that not very much is gonna change, that we are gonna continue the march toward a dead world, and that the result is even worse than human extinction, which is brought up as the threat. Uh, I've been an environmentalist since I was a little boy. Going back to, I have a vivid memory standing with my father 
holding hands, looking at a big flock of birds. And, and I said, that's a big flock of birds. And he said, let me tell you about the passenger pigeons who, whose flocks darkened the sky, flocks from one horizon to the other, and they're all gone, extinct. I cried in my bed thinking about, the, about that. They're extinct. I've been an environmentalist since 1974, I guess. <laughs> That's when I first began to have this, this, this feeling um, of grief about the world. And so when climate change came on the scene, I thought, good. Now they're going to have to do what I've always wanted them to do. Now we're going to be able to offer reasons in their language why we should stop offshore oil drilling. And it wasn't mountaintop removal yet at that point. It was strip mining, which was you know, just one step away from mountaintop removal. And, and all of these things. I thought, now they, they're, they're going to have to stop now. We're going to be able to offer a self-interested reason because if we don't stop, there's going to be terrible economic losses and maybe even human extinction. Now I think that maybe this isn't actually such a, such a gift, that perhaps we've made a bargain with the devil and stepped onto losing territory by making the conversation about human survival or, God forbid, human um, economic benefits. And I see all the time um, arguments, ecosystem services, the oceans are worth X trillion dollars. This forest provides ecosystem services of a billion dollars a year, say. Uh, the Amazon ecosystem services worth, you know, whatever, pick a number, 20 trillion dollars, whatever it is. Whatever number you pick, you're saying that, yeah, if you value that forest at a billion, then you're also saying that if you could get two billion by destroying it, you should. You're stepping onto the wrong territory. You're engaging in the wrong conversation. That's, that's what I've come to believe. And, and we almost always underestimate it, even in those terms. And so, yeah, I was saying that, that what I'm afraid of is not actually human extinction, not that I want that. What I'm afraid of more is that this path toward a dead world will continue, just as it has for thousands of years. And that humans will continue to survive. This, this, the uh, talk this morning that I heard about oysters, you know, he, he was saying, okay, climate change is causing bigger and bigger challenges to the oyster breeding industry, and we are learning to insulate ourselves from these effects. So having the oysters grown on land, you know, indoors and, and um, having buffering systems against the sudden rise in pH that's caused by rainfall runoff and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, yeah, we're going to, like, where's the end destination of that? It's a world of where all food is grown in confined operations. Um, like hydroponics factories. The Netherlands is the number two exporter of food in Europe. Has almost no land. It's all grown in these gigantic robotified hydroponics factories. 
Like, what if the technological cheerleaders are right that we can find technological substitutes for everything nature provides? What if the future is bubble cities and air filters and geoengineering to reflect sunlight to, to, to modulate the temperature and carbon sucking machines to take carbon out of the atmosphere and, and concrete vats of algae to make oxygen and basically I call it the concrete world where everything that is not of direct service to measurable human benefit is dead and we have at least high-definition digital displays of all of the nature that has been destroyed to entertain us. And GDP grows the entire time as we substitute nature's gifts with manufactured goods. What if that's possible? What if the choice right now isn't, can we survive? How, what if the right question is not, how do we survive or can we survive? What if the right question is, what kind of world do we want to live in? A living world or a dead world? What if we will not be forced into making a different choice? What if climate change will not save us from ourselves? Because I don't know about you, but even if the climate deniers, skeptics, whatever you want to call them, are right, I'm still opposed to offshore oil drilling. I'm still opposed to, to tar sands removal. Have you seen the, the vast landscapes that had been forests full of toxic pools where the migratory birds land and then they all die? Have you seen the oil spills in Nigeria, in the Niger Delta? Have you seen the mountaintop removal before and after. I'd be opposed to the fracking wells, the, the, the insult and destruction, the poisoning of the groundwater. <sighs> yeah, so the question for me is, what kind of world do we want to live in? a living world or a dead world. And if we want to live in a living world, well, we got to face up to the fact that we've chosen step by step, even before the fossil fuel era, one step at a time toward a dead world. J.B. McKinnon, the natural naturalist, calls it a 10% world. 10% of the life right now. Just kind of a, it's more of a poetic than a scientific figure. But it's kind of accurate in some, some areas, whales, fish, sea turtles, elephants, maybe less than 10%. Now it's looking like it's happening to the insects. Why have we chosen that? What are the conditions of the choice to move toward a dead world? And here is the turnaround. First, to point to our desire to be in service to life and to choose a living world. And to ask, what is in service to life? 
And you could look at that in many ways. You could fit that into um, standard environmental issues. I, I, from the living earth perspective, I developed four priorities, um, which maybe I'll, I don't want to talk too, too long, but I think we're still okay here, yeah? Starting to wind down, and then we'll have Q&A. Four priorities, first priority is to preserve and protect any pristine ecosystems that still exist, especially the Amazon and the Congo, but, but many smaller ones as well, because these are the places, these are the reservoirs of health that still exist. These are the intact organs. These are where Gaia's memory of health is still intact. And if we can protect them, there is always hope for health to radiate back out from these places. Now, of course, you could also look at that. That's kind of a philosophical principle. You can also look at their effects, their, their carbon sequestration numbers, their maintenance of the water cycle. I mean, the whole global water cycle is maintained by the Amazon. Um, it, it, I'm not going to go into the details, but it's fascinating. Some of the work that's coming from, the, um, from hydrologists today, um, rain for the planet is one. Um, the new water paradigm is some amazing, amazing work that, that really illustrates the importance of life. Um, so anyway, preserve and protect the pristine ecosystem. Second priority is to restore what has been damaged. And this especially means reforestation, afforestation, and regenerative agriculture to heal the soil, to heal the water, to heal the forests, to heal the wetlands, to bring back the beavers, to, to, to establish marine preserves so that the whales and the fish can come back, so that the organs can heal. And if you insist on looking at things through the carbon dioxide lens, actually a lot of these practices have just enormous potential to draw down carbon dioxide into the soil. You learned in school maybe as I did that it takes 500 years to build an inch of topsoil. But there are farmers out there farmers and ranchers who are doing it in one year. The Rodale Institute estimates that if, if these practices were adopted worldwide, it would draw down more carbon than total anthropogenic emissions annually. So tremendous potential there. Um, yeah, that's the second priority. Third priority, in my view, from the, from the living earth perspective, is to stop poisoning the earth, to stop this 90-year experiment of what happens if we douse the entire planet in herbicides, insecticides, um, fungicides, etc. What happens if we do that? that's poisoning the planet on a tissue level, maybe not a, if you want to use that metaphor, rather than an organ level. And the effects are, are, are hard to identify because it's not just one thing. It's, it's everything. Like what's causing the honeybee decline? That pattern, let's find the one thing. Is it climate change? Global warming, is that causing the honeybee decline? Oh, that would be a relief because now I know what to do about it. Or is it actually the neonicotinoid um, insecticides that are 
weakening the, the, the hives? Or is it something like we don't even, that's not even, is it the, um, the decline of bears? Paul Stamets, the mycologist, was describing how um, when bears scratch trees to mark their territory, sap comes out of the trees and a certain fungus grows on that sap and bees are especially attracted to that fungus and it turns out that that fungus has antiviral compounds that give the bees um, resistance to the colony collapse pathogen. Like, we don't know how this planet works, really. But when we see it as alive, we start looking for that kind of thing. It's inconceivably complicated, complex. So that's third priority. And fourth priority is to reduce fossil fuel emissions. <laughs> and if that seems outrageous to you that it's only fourth priority, um, consider that actually if we implemented the first three priorities, that would already happen. Because if you hold every place and species as vital and sacred, there's no more tar sands, there's no more pipelines, there's no more fracking, there's no more offshore oil drilling, and there's no more mountaintop removal. And there's also no more biofuels plantations that are being planted all across Africa, South America, and Asia to gain um, supposedly carbon neutral fuel. No more mega hydro projects, no more mega dams. When you look at things through just a carbon lens, or actually through any metric, through any quantity, you miss that which cannot be measured. And in fact, the reduction of the world to quantity is part of the problem. And that's really what science is based on. Science, if, it's, if it can't be measured, it is outside the bounds of science. I'm not saying that we should then abandon science. In fact, science carries with it the, a profound humility, actually. In its best incarnation, science says, we do not know, so we will ask. It is a posture of humility. Every religion has a sacred core, and often in its institutional aspect, it demonstrates the opposite of that. So in the case of science, it would be arrogance. But we should not throw the baby out with the bathwater. And then to recognize what are the proper bounds of the quantitative method, and what gets left out? What do we not see through that lens? What other ways of knowing can we bring back? So I'm not gonna discourse on that anymore. Um, but I'm just, I guess I'll just kind of tie it together by saying, like you can see, so I, I started off with polarization and kind of one step at a time related that to our relationship to the world 
to our basic ways of our, our, our society's patterns of problem solving, the oppositional stance, the, the loss of identity, which comes from a loss of belonging, and that, that oh yeah, and I asked the question, how, what are the conditions of the choice toward death, and how can we serve life? And I, so I mentioned these four priorities, yeah. But service to life, because we don't understand how this world works, things that may not make sense from a quantitative point of view actually may have the greatest power of all. Those who are doing, say, whale conservation or beaver restoration or bear conservation have not been able to make a carbon argument for their efforts um, until quite recently when some of these um, ecosystem uh, trophic cascades have come to light. And it's like, oh yeah, actually the whales are important for carbon sequestration because they provide food for the orcas which then, without whales, prey on seals and sea otters which then no longer keep sea urchins in check, which then um, explode in population and destroy kelp forests, which then no longer can buffer seawater to allow shellfish to grow, which then um, would, who would otherwise sequester carbon in the form of calcium carbonate. So I guess the whales are important after all. Like, but you, how do you quantify that? So, so what I'm saying is a lot gets left out. So, and the point I'm trying to make is that service to life may not fit into the climate change save the world discourse. And, and I don't know, whale conservation or, or you know, helping maintain robust ecosystems, that fits in a little bit better, but what if, what if your passion is to um, house homeless people or to get men off death row? or to preserve dying languages or revitalize dying languages. What good does that do? Or what if your calling and what really calls to your heart and your service to life is to take care of a, of a child? Maybe it's or a disabled person or an elderly person. What if that's your service to life? A prominent environmental activist, I gave him a speech sort of like that, saying, yeah, we need to revalidate the things that have been cast to the margins. And he said, Charles, you're wasting your time. You've got to decide if you're going to be relevant or not. And relevant means that you put all of your efforts into instituting a meaningful carbon tax in the narrowing window of opportunity that we have. Otherwise, anything else you care about, like dolphin conservation or prison reform or sacred masculinity or, or indigenous languages, all of that won't matter. When the sea levels rise 50 feet, that won't matter. And I'm like... Are you so sure that you know how this world works? I've talked to indigenous people. What do you think is causing climate change? I asked a couple of Dogon, a couple of Dogon priests, and they were like, yeah, it's not what you guys think. 
it's that you're digging up sacred artifacts that were ceremonially, ceremonially placed on PowerPoints in the earth, and you're removing them and putting them in museums in London and New York, and thereby the covenant that humans have maintained with the planet to um, preserve an environment suitable for human habitation has been broken. And you've got to put those artifacts back and you've got to start doing the ceremonies again. Otherwise, the climate will be deranged. Okay. That's pretty hard to translate into carbon metrics. And I'm hesitant to go to them and say, <laughs> you superstitious savages. Here's yet another example where the white man knows better than you how this world works. Let me school you. Hesitant, I'm hesitant to say that. And I've heard, I don't know, this isn't, I'm not trying to prove anything. All I'm saying, all I'm asking for, uh, all I'm begging for is let's pause for a moment of humility and recognize that maybe we don't know. Maybe our conceit of making the world better through the technologies of control has blinded us to the living intelligent planet. Here's a intuition that maybe many people share, that every act, even if it's invisible to anybody else, has cosmic significance. Because we're not separate beings, actually. We're not separate from the world, we're not separate from each other. Maybe the operating principle of causality that we should look for is like Rupert Sheldrake says, morphic resonance, which says that any change that happens in one place creates a field of change that allows that change to happen more easily somewhere else. Any act of kindness creates a field of kindness. Any act of generosity, a field of generosity. And any service to life, any affirmation of the choice that I'm, that I'm asking for, the choice for a living planet, any service to life creates a field, and you could even say is a prayer that says, yeah, this is what we want, and here's how serious I am, that I mean it, that I want life. I'm so serious that I will serve life as it is presented to me, even when my rational mind says it won't do any good. But this woman needs help. This old woman needs help. She needs me to change her bedpans. How can I explain why going to her house every day and changing those bedpans is, is better for the planet than campaigning against fossil fuel emissions? The math doesn't add up, but I'm listening to something else. And just so that you don't misconstrue what I'm saying, I'm not telling you to ignore what science is telling us about the world. Take that in, but don't choose from that. Take all of the information in, and I hope I've offered some confirmation of information that is coming in about the interdependency of all life, the living earth. Take it all in, 
take in what cli climate science is saying, take in your lived experiences, and then feel the yearning, that feeling of <laughs> no other world is acceptable to me but a world that's coming alive. You look out at those seals. We saw seals today. I love seals. I don't care what their ecosystem services are. I mean, I do care, but that's not why I love the seals. We all have a love in us for some place or being on this earth. And maybe just one more little thing. I, I asked, what are the conditions of the choice? Why have we chosen death? I offered really implicitly two reasons. Well, the first was more the, the, that the ideology that Earth is not alive, that it's a thing, and that our actions, that we can insulate ourselves from the effect of our actions. The climate crisis as it is articulated to us in the dominant narrative of climate change has an important medicinal effect, which is that it is communicating to us that that is not true, that we can separate ourselves from what we do in the earth, that everything that we do comes back. Even if we could survive on a dead planet, something in us would die. In fact, something in us is dying already. We don't know why we feel so impoverished necessarily. Even the wealthy feel impoverished. They don't know what they're missing. Can you imagine the wealth of seeing a thousand whales? Can you imagine the wealth of birds so loud that you can hear them a mile off as when the first explorers um, anchored off the coast of New Zealand? They were like half a mile off the coast and they couldn't sleep. The birds were so loud. I mean, that is a wealth that no amount of money can compensate for. What we're doing to the world hurts. It hurts. And climate change is, is, is a message that we're not separate. That's the medicine of it. So yeah, there's the ideology of separation and then there's the trauma that has come from a civilization built on separation, the trauma of the loss of community, the trauma that visits so many of us in so many different ways personally, that makes it hard to feel all the way, that causes us to retreat into the very image of the ideology of separation. So anybody who's doing work to change the story or to change the experience of life to help us feel again. 
you're contributing to our collective shift in a choice to live in, in service to life and in a world that's becoming more and more alive. And it's already happening a little bit. It's coming back to life, and so are we. Thank you. So, before we uh, do Q&A here, maybe everybody take like a minute just to, uh, to sit in silence and then I'll offer you a little prompt. Okay, so the prompt would be to just kind of uh, say into somebody's ear something that you know now that you would like to remind yourself of in a moment in the future where you are feeling cynicism, despair, or paralysis. What is a piece of information that you want to tell that future self? Think about that. And when it comes to you, and take your time, take a minute or two even, when that reminder to your future self is available to you, say it quietly in the ear of a neighbor. Yeah, two or three minutes, and then I will launch Q&A.
After you've spoken it, just let it settle for a minute. And maybe as you do, notice if there's any uh, question or statement that is burning inside of you that wants to be spoken or asked. Um, and anything is fair game. Yes, back there. Um, oh, thank you. Um, hi, I uh, just moved to town. I just want to thank you so much for your talk. Um, like you, I've been an environmentalist um, since I can remember. I've pursued the field of biology. And when I couldn't find work, um, most recently, I worked for three months for a MOOC sea farm. And um, like you, I think I was always thinking, like, how much better it would be to have shellfish outside um, and to be in, in a confined building. But the more I think about it, um, I just, I have a lot of respect for Bill Mook and the fact that he, because his livelihood and his um, staff depends on clean water and um, legislation that works with climate change, he is, um, and because there's industry associated with it, I find that I have a lot of respect for, for what's going on. And um, so I was working with microplastics in my master's degree. And in thinking of careers, there's this idea of do we continue to document the decline or do we work towards um, the possibilities of the future? And there's something about, I recommend everyone checking out his facility. It's, it doesn't take up much more space than this. And the life that comes out of it is really incredible. Um, and while it, nothing's perfect, uh, I do think that there's possibilities where um, growing things inside using technology doesn't have to coincide with um, a world that's dying. And, and I know that you weren't trying to say that, but I just think that it's important that everyone keeps that idea of aquaculture open as a, as a possibility that puts food back into our system rather than just taking food out. Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually respect Bill Mook as well, um, just having only heard him that once. Um, for me, it's not about, like, is that operation perfect? But really, it's to ask, what is the natural next step toward a healing role in the environment. And understanding that businesses are, are subject to all kinds of um, perverse incentives that reward um, the externalization of, of ecological costs and that don't um, incentivize doing it in the most beautiful way possible. So, you know, working within those constraints, like, I don't know, like, I mean, again, like I was saying, like, I don't, I'm not out there to find the bad guy who's doing it wrong, but to really understand, if, if I'm in judgment of anybody, it means that there's something I don't understand. And so to understand what are the conditions that um, are making it uneconomical for you to um, restore the, the shellfish reefs or something like that, like, and how can we change that? So yeah, thank you for that comment. Yeah, yeah. I do have a question. Oh, thanks. 
Um, I have a question that I will get to, but first I just wanted to thank you. Um, I almost didn't come tonight because I was at home and I have a lot of homework to do. Um, I'm a sophomore at GSA, um, and a lot of times I feel like there are different levels that I'm living in constantly. There's like this surface level that's just finish high school, go to college, grow up, find a job, like, and eventually die. And then there's, I know, and then there's all of these deeper things that's like, what do I want to do to help the world because it's so broken in so many ways. Um, and I just read this little preface in one of your books um, that says that the shell of the old norm still remains, albeit hollow of meaning. Um, and I feel like that is just, that's so true and that relates so much to how I feel that like we're living on this level that's just, it's created and based on years and years of living the same way, but that as the earth is changing and dying in so many ways that it's just, it, it lacks the meaning. It really is a shell. Um, but my question to you is, sorry, let me find it. Um, you were talking about how there are so many different organs that make up the world. And I know that my bad guy is often, when I want to blame something, I blame humanity. I, I look around at the world and I say, the problem with this is us. And if we could just go away, like maybe everything would be okay. Um, but tonight, actually, you talking has given me some hope and I've made this realization that if we as humans start to do good, we can actually do more to help the world than if we all just die. And um, I wanted to ask, what do you think humans, what organism and what organ of the world are we? Yeah. Thank you. You know, there's the, uh, you know about Burning Man, the festival? They have a, an ethic of leave no trace, uh, which kind of makes sense, you know, when you think humanity's just done all, all these terrible things, but I would like to replace it with leave a beautiful trace. Leave it not the same as you found it, but leave it better than you found it. There's a lot of scholarship um, around about how uh, indigenous people in North America um, tended the wild. It wasn't just that they were living in some virgin wilderness and not disturbing it, but they were actively participating in the increase of life there. And there's, there's a, maybe some debate to be had around that, but they saw themselves as tending the wild, not dominating it, but not remaining aloof from it either. And you could look at, at even what Bill Mook is doing and, some, and, and more generally what regenerative farmers are doing they're operating from an understanding that, that they can enliven what is and what has been damaged and that there will be mutual benefit there. I wanna, and I'll say one more thing about that um, on a more philosophical level, but also I wanted to comment on your comment uh, about uh, the hollowing out of the story. Like part of that story, part of the old story, I call it, is the story of how to do human how to do life. And there's a formula, you know, you get good grades, you study hard, you stay away from drugs, you get, a, you get into a good college, you build your resume, you get a career, you get married, you live in a box, uh, you have kids, you, you have prudent investments, et cetera, et cetera, and then you die. Like there's this, there's this trajectory of, 
of, and it kind of worked if you were born in the 50s and the 60s. But when higher education was basically free, when there were plenty of jobs, if you had a PhD, that was a guaranteed prestigious good job. Now, like there's, you know, PhDs, um, you know, waiting tables and stuff. And, and you graduate from college with, um, you know, 50 or $100,000 of debt and no job and like the whole thing and, and the suburban family in a box, that doesn't work too well either. And you get sick and you go to the doctor and the doctor fixes you, well, that doesn't work very well anymore either for more and more conditions. And so the whole story of how to live a life is breaking down. And as, as the older generation, which I seem to be joining, um, <laughs> like we're, we're, we're really imbued with the programs of our, of our predecessors. And so there's discomfort. Even if we recognize the bankruptcy of the story, we feel uncomfortable in really validating that because what if my kid doesn't get a job, you know? Uh, my, my, I have a 20-year-old son who is um, brilliant at um, computers and stuff. He, um, he uh, was like hired like with no resume, no interview, basically, by this guy who I met at a conference, and Matthew, my son, was with me. And Matthew was just talking about cryptocurrencies and the algorithms and this and that, all stuff he learned from YouTube, basically. And the guy who owned, like, a, a tech company was so impressed that he hired him. He said, yeah, I want you to write the, um, uh, the uh, liquidity relay station for an Ethereum-based token exchange uh, using the 0x protocol, and Matthew's like, well, I don't know anything about that. And he's like, oh, you'll learn. Um, and he did, and he wrote the thing, and then right before he was finished, he quit, and, he's, and he said, this is just not meaningful. So then, you know, dad is a little worried here. So, okay, but that's very admirable and all, but I'm kind of worried, like, couldn't you have you just finished that, you know? And then, <laughs> and then, so then I set him up with this guy I know who's like this, another entrepreneur with, you know, $100 million company and stuff, and, and he's a friend, and I'm like, just talk to Matthew, will ya? So he talks to Matthew and offers him three internships, three separate internships doing tech stuff, and Matthew turns them all down. And I'm like, ah, a little bit, like I'm proud of him, and I'm also like a little bit nervous. And now he's working at my brother's farm, I think, um, and he built John a root washer last year, and now he's building him a leaf washer. And, I don't know where it's all going to lead, but I, I do fundamentally, even if I'm sometimes uncomfortable, I trust, I trust him more than I trust myself to be more free of the story I was programmed with. And maybe compared to people in my generation, I'm pretty free of it, but I notice the legacy inside me. So I want to just say that to, to you and to mom. Um, yeah, and, and, and then to, as far as like humanity, what organ are we? I think that's a mystery. But what I know for sure is that we are not nature's big mistake. We used to think that some insects are the bad insects and the earth would be better off without them. That we could, we could improve on nature by weeding out some of the species, thinking that there were some mistakes out there. Later, we came to learn that every species in an ecosystem is there for a reason has a gift to give toward the resiliency and the evolution of the whole. 
and you take one species away, and everybody's worse off. Even its prey are worse off when you take it away. So nature creates us for a reason, to meet a need. And this sounds unscientific in terms of random mutation followed by natural selection, but when you look into some, um, uh, some of the neo-Lamarckian um, views on evolution that are coming out um, based on epigenetics and um, the uh, um, and genetic engineering of organisms on their own DNA. Um, anyway, I, I don't want to. Let me just say that nature doesn't. Yeah, like we're made for a reason. What that is, we don't know yet because we've, we're still a childhood species. We haven't fully. Like a child plays with, its, with his gift or her gift and takes from the mother. And then when you become an adult, you seek to apply those skills that you've developed during playtime toward your true purpose. And I think that, that humanity as a collective is emerging into adult, adulthood right now, undergoing a coming of age ordeal. Uh, and if we make it through the coming of age ordeal, then we'll be getting serious and really asking the question, what are we here for? It's the right question, and I don't have the answer. But in the short term, I know what the answer is. For sure, it's to repair the damage that's been done. That's for sure. And that'll take probably five or 600 years. So good enough for now. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know who to call in now. There's lots of hands. This guy here is one. This person. Hello. Um, thank you so much for what you've brought, first of all. Uh, you might be interested to know that 40 miles from here lived a woman who, through her insight and through her sense for life, brought a case with 11 others against the United States government for the spraying of DDT, which came to the attention, this case they lost the case in the Supreme Court, but this case came to the attention of Rachel Carson. Her name was Marjorie Spock, Dr. Benjamin Spock's sister. And this material that she had garnered over, oh, maybe a dozen years to fight the government, she then handed over lock, stock, and barrel to Rachel Carson. And when I mentioned once, well, maybe, you know, I'm, you're just a single person can't do that much, she, at an age of 104, rose up and said, by God, you can if you get started. <laughs> so uh, courage, a sense for life, a love for what you're doing, and I think something that you marveled at the beauty of phenomena, and the way nature reveals itself. And I think beauty um, overtakes when one realizes the intricacies of life and the beauty of life overcomes these other things. And that is what is necessary in education. We are not going to solve the environmental problems by decrying what they are. We have to know what they are and then strike out for what is alive, as you have said, so beautifully said. Thank you.
Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Someone over there, maybe? Yeah. Uh, I very much subscribe to the Gaia hypothesis, the living planet, and I'm part of it, the symbiotic planet, uh, Margulies, and so forth. And uh, I, uh, my purpose here is to make an announcement of a conference that deals with the developing climate problem or disruption that we face. And uh, it uh, deals with uh, the message is that we are advocating or promoting science-based climate policy. The name of the conference is the Climate Convergence Conference and we're converging or bringing together the different generations, including the George Stevens Academy students that we've met with, and uh, some of them are expressing very deep feelings of despair as related to the climate situation that they find themselves in. And we'll have uh, several student speakers. We're also converging the scientists both physical scientists and social scientists and social scientists will be helping to teach us how to uh, communicate about climate change that will reduce the polarization that you were concerned about. Uh, also converging about 30-something organizations that were responded very favorably to the message of science-based climate policy. Uh, and finally, bringing together people with, uh, who share a concern, a deep concern, for the health and trajectory of our living planet. Uh, there, there are some circulars regarding the conference uh, at the table outside, and more information is available uh, at reversingfalls.org. And I just thank you very much for yeah. the time to make the announcement. Uh, it's July 20th, and it, it, it includes, at George Stevens Academy, I'm sorry, it includes many of the pieces that you were speaking about, an echo psychological piece, a, a spirit of regenerative farming, mm -hmm. Uh, sequestering and mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Thank you again. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm really um, happy to see that the uh, regeneration um, and conservation are becoming uh, more prominent now in the climate movement. Because um, not, not only does it offer a new hope, but it also offers um, a lot more ways to act for people that, that are much more place-based rather than depending entirely on global institutions. So I think it, it provides, um, yeah, I think it's a really important, important thing to add to it and to really, that's been a lot of what I've been 
when I speak at climate conferences, that's what I'm talking about a lot, so thank you. Yeah. Um, back here, this guy. Hi. <clears throat> I'm going to be a little bit of a Debbie Downer here, okay? Uh, maybe this is a confessional <clears throat> for me. Uh, but first, uh, I want to compliment you and your talk. Uh, but I want to state that it reminded me very, very much of a talk that I heard 40 years ago in New York City by Judu Krishnamurti. <clears throat> and uh, to make it uh, that message very, very simple, it's that <clears throat> as a species, we tend to not see the world. We, we, we tend to see it through our thoughts structure and color things in all sorts of different ways, but not really truly looking at reality. And as you talk about uh, what you've learned uh, through your inner work and through your scientific work as an ecologist, uh, it very much reminds me of that. <clears throat> However, uh, I am in great despair <laughs> lately over the past uh, 10 years with the direction that things are going and I can't help but see the larger forces of power in the world coalescing in, in uh, reaction to what's happening into greater and more damaging plans than we could collectively imagine. Uh, and uh, although uh, I've lost hope, and I was also, for 55 years of my life, have, I've been very hopeful and a great believer in the evolution of not just the world, but the evolution of uh, the human being and the human spirit. Uh, and although I connect with everything that you've said, uh, when I look forward, I'm seeing just pain and more pain. <clears throat> but that doesn't mean that I'll stop. <laughs> I'm going to move forward, but I'll move forward like the old Chinese proverb about, you know, taking generations to build. Uh, and that's what we need, generations to build the environment. But we can't be Pollyannish about this either, because uh, as we speak, just uh, right now, the great militaries of the world are planning on what they're going to do when things start getting bad and how they're going to grab resources and power to save their, their folks or their God knows what. So uh, I just wanted to mention that. I'm not saying that, you know, uh, that everybody should give up hope, but I think we also have to be very, very realistic. And I'll throw one other name of a European historian that passed away around five years ago, or six years ago, I can't keep track. Tony Jew, okay? And uh, uh, his, one of his messages, because you started to talk about polarization, and one of his messages from sort of a political perspective is that uh, in recent terms, post-war period, we have forgotten what has happened politically from polarization as a community and we're History is repeating itself because of our forgetfulness 
And that's an important message, not only with the ecological message, the inner work, we, you know, we also simultaneously, there's uh, other spheres that are really, really important because to look at and to talk about because of the danger that they pose. So I'd mm -hmm. love for you to react to my talk. Yeah, thank I'm you. sorry for being um, a Debbie Downer. No, no, I wanna, um, I wanna thank you for giving voice to what's probably present in a lot of people. Um, including myself, um, and I resonate strongly with, and I want to actually kind of develop it more, the idea of we have to be realistic here, which means we have to take in all of the data points. I am not ignorant of some of the things you mentioned. I'm not ignorant of the um, machinations of the power elite. I'm not ignorant of the dangers of 5G that's now being prepared for all of us. I'm not ignorant of um, various geoengineering schemes that are being developed, um, the surveillance state, uh, the potential of AI, um, and I could go down a lot of very dark rabbit holes that I've, that I've discovered. And I have other data points that also need to be included. Maybe some of you know somebody who was diagnosed with a medically incurable condition and was healed through something not even recognized by medical science. My own mother was an example of this. Maybe some of you have had experiences in your life that the story of the real said were impossible. Maybe it was a spectacular dream that came true in just ways that you'd be like, well, it could be coincidence, but holy shit, I can't believe that happened. Or maybe you had an amazing synchronicity. Or maybe you witnessed something that, maybe you saw a UFO. Like, and it was like, there's no way that that was a weather balloon, you know? Like something like really, I mean, maybe you've had experiences that don't fit into reality as we've been offered it. Maybe you've experienced miracles of healing that don't violate the laws of physics as we've been taught them, but that violate the laws of human nature as we've been taught them. Does your despair take those into account? Do you ask if that can happen to a human body? What's possible for the ecological body or the body politic? And then the question that that brings forth where do those kind of things come from? I like to define a miracle as something that is impossible from a given story, but possible from a new story, which means that a miracle is a new story knocking at the door. As the shell of the cosmic egg cracks, the egg of what we thought was real cracks, light comes in, that's called a miracle. And it suggests that maybe there's more to the world than we thought. Maybe things don't work the way that we thought we did, they, they, that they did. One thing I'll say about these miracles is that they often come in times where there has been a, re a release of control. They don't, at least like a lot of these synchronicities that, that you might experience, they often come at a, at a time of life where you're um, in an uncertain place, where your marriage has fallen apart, where you've 
you find yourself in a strange city with no plan, that kind of thing. Where the order that we normally impose upon the world based on our story of the world falters. That often comes through crisis, which is what we are facing today. Crisis being the breakdown of, of what we thought was real and who we thought we are. I think that, that big change, whether it's in personal life or in collective life, comes through the same process of, I mean, first you, you fulfill an old story and then it becomes confining and then it hollows out from the interior and nobody believes in it anymore, even though the superstructures are just as robust as ever. But no one believes it anymore. We don't hold on to it anymore. We wish it would stop, even when we participate in it. And then it's very fragile, just like the, the, the Berlin Wall, when no one believed in communism anymore. But the structures were still there, but it, it fell just in the space of weeks. And I think that on a bigger level even than that, the, our, our stories and the, and the edifice built on top of them are becoming fragile. So those are two reasons, two, two data points that I would bring in. And so it's, to, so it's to say, what am I excluding from reality? Pollyanna-ish Pollyanna -ish, um, thinking comes from excluding some of what's real, like the, the, the tragedies, the realities of political power today. And despair comes from excluding other things that are real. And maybe you've never experienced anything like that. There is, an, there is a collective organic necessity for some people to uh, assay the territory of despair in its fullness. So I'm not trying to persuade you out of this state if that is the state that you are exploring on our behalf. And if you are, thank you. However, for me, despair is irrational. It depends on pushing out some of the data points. Because I've experienced things in my life that, that my upbringing and my birth religion would say are nonsense, that I would have ridiculed at one point in my life. But I've experienced them. So what do I do with that? I mean, for a while, I would just put them in another category of, well, that was weird, or am I crazy, you know? But we, got to, we have to let it in because, as I said before, the transition that we are embarked upon includes everything. It's not to replace the fuel stock with carbon neutral sources. That's not the revolution. It's a total revolution in what we understand ourselves to be, how we relate to the world, and, and what we know to be real. It's, it's, it's that deep. Therefore, the things that we've excluded and pushed to the margins have to come back into the center. Maybe, are we supposed to go to 8.30? What's the, what's the uh, arrangement? Yeah, I think we have time for one more question. Okay. Uh, maybe you can pick. Thank you. Hi, Charles. Hi, everyone. My name is Matthew Holsinger. I'm from Buffalo, New York. And... <laughs> It was synchronistic that we're able to be here today. We're, we're um, visiting some friends at the Possibility Alliance in Belfast, Maine this week. And then I saw that you were going to be here. So 
grateful to be here, and I just want to express uh, my thanks for your work and um, the impact it's had on my path. And um, yeah, I have a comment and a question. Um, as far as not separating things, I think that our ecological health can't be separated from our social health, and a lot of the priorities you outlined from the living earth perspective can apply to a lot of the social harms that have done through our white supremacist, uh, scientific reductionist, uh, dominant culture that have enslaved and Jim Crowed and prison and industrial complex and genocided. You know, our whole country is based on land theft, genocide, and slavery. And those systems continue in different ways. Um, so yeah, you know, that kind of preserving and protecting what is still left of different cultures and restoring what has been damaged through reparations and, you know, stopping the harm that continues, I think is very applicable also to our social system. So thank you for that. And then the question is about polarization and do you, what are your thoughts or what do you see as any actual purpose, value, or benefits of the polarization that we're seeing today. Okay, yeah. Um, again, first of all, I'll respond to the comment. Um, you know, those four priorities, in a way, are kind of arbitrary and even a little bit insidious in uh, suggesting um, a valid distinction between social and environmental issues. Uh, it's obvious, and this is what you're tapping into, that, that the social climate <laughs> The political climate, the economic climate, is intimately connected to the geological climate. And that the way that we treat, like a society that exploits its most vulnerable members, members will also be a society that exploits the most vulnerable places on earth. It's inevitable. It's the same mentality. Which means that any kind of healing is part of all healing. Um, so as for like the positive, um, you know, polarization, it, it's, it's serving a need, a need for, for identity, a need for belonging, um, a need for, to, yeah, to know who we are. In the absence of anything else, like people get, it's a step out of, out of loneliness and alienation, I think. So you could say maybe that's a benefit. Um, the fact that, that polarization is, is infiltrating more and more realms of our society might also be part of a process of something reaching its extreme before it gives way to its opposite. And also I wanna say that there are situations where the um, template of the fight is actually the right solution. There are situations where there is a perpetrator causing harm, and you have the power to stop them, and you can intervene. That happens sometimes. There are situations, a medical situation, where you do need to kill those bacteria, where the patient's gonna die. That can happen. The problem isn't necessarily fighting. 
The problem is the habit of fighting that comes from um, an ideological perception of the world that reflexively assigns evil events to evil people and that ascribes evil that says basically people do bad things because they are bad people. Hatred is actually a diversion of revolutionary energy onto something that perpetuates the status quo. So I'm not saying to say people of color, oh, don't be angry at them. I'm saying you're being tricked into misidentifying the cause of the problem. If you want to, and at some point, this, this is going to come up for, for many activists, and for many it's already coming up. I'm getting a lot of resonance from, from this when I speak to activists, that at some point you have to sacrifice winning. You have to sacrifice being vindicated. You have to sacrifice seeing your enemies grovel in defeat, being shown up, being ridiculed and being, hum being humiliated. Would you be willing to accept a just society in which nobody ever admitted that they were wrong all along and that you never get to be identified as being right all along and you don't get to be the hero. Are you willing to sacrifice those benefits for a healed world? The people I admire the most are the ones who do not get the glory, who do not get celebration. What I'm doing is actually pretty easy because People are often telling me, oh, Charles, your work affected my life, and da da da, da you know, you're doing a great thing in the world. Well, what is the perception that, has, that identifies me as doing a great thing in the world and not the single mom struggling and, and still, I know a woman like this, she's so patient with, their, with her five kids, even after the divorce, even after the abuse that happened to her, she's still so patient with them. And no one celebrates her, and she barely, in some parts of her life, barely even survived. But on a 500-year time scale, the ripple that her invisible choices send out into the future is, I would imagine, much greater than people like me. Or maybe no greater or maybe no less. It doesn't, you know, the metrics that we use to evaluate what's important and what is not important, who is important and who is not important, that's part of the problem. That's part of a colonial, um, a colonial ontology, a colonial metaphysics that, that thinks it knows how the world works. Yeah. So... And I hope this, this is, you know, liberates us to not have to strive to be one of the big guys or the hero or to have the big impact. If it comes to you, fine. But maybe what service to life is calling is something that is not so celebrated. When it's not celebrated, that's even a bigger prayer that you're making by doing it. There's no mixed motive there. It's pure. Yeah. So I will end with that, with thanks to the humble people. Thank you, Carol.